we're almost all addicted to something. And the sources of our addictions have changed. They're not about substances. They're about behaviors and interactions and experiences. And so I talk a lot about things like email, smartphones, social media, social networking, addiction to exercise, to work, to shopping, that if you speak to most people in the developed world, there's at least one of those things that they wish they could do less of, but it's very hard for them to do less of. Welcome. I'm your host, Nicholas Strauss, and you're listening to The Participant Observer, a space where you become aware, a place where you are the Participant Observer. Welcome, Dr. Adam Alter. Thank you for joining us on The Participant Observer. Thanks very much, Nicholas. Happy, sure. happy to be talking with you. To segue into your book, if people are just listening to these accolades, they would have the impression of a very great thinker. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I do think you, you are a great thinker. Thank you. But just to uh, make the point that in your book, Drunk Tank Pink, you are speaking very much about the phenomena that we all experience in the use of language and unconscious energies, nonverbal energies that give us the impression about an experience that we interpret in certain ways. And there seem to be, according to the research that you've looked at, some universal interpretations. How is it that you can identify all of this? Do you look within yourself and pick an experience and see if, in fact, it applies to others? Or are you just sort of generalizing and trying to target certain behaviors that you observe in others and see where the explanation comes from? All of this is grounded in science. It's grounded in the science of, of social and cognitive psychology. So all of the things that I talk about in the book are based on, on careful experimentation using the scientific method. So a lot of the ideas come from intuition. And the people in my field will sit having coffee or talking to other people or walking down the street and ideas will come to them. They'll see someone doing something strange and they'll wonder, is that true about everyone? Is that a universal? Is that something that just applies to certain kinds of people with certain personalities? Is it a feature of our culture? And then we'll run studies to answer that question. It's why I love doing what I do. It's because I have the opportunity to pursue whatever interests me at, in the moment, at any moment in time. Right. So that's where a lot of these ideas come from. And I think what you read in the book is the product of careful study and of empirical analysis, but a lot of it was inspired by quirks that you know I and other people in the field notice across time. I must confess that when I first began reading the book, I was observing myself as well and noticed a kind of um, an eerie experience as if I was being watched. Now, what, what I mean by that is you seem to peel back a layer and sort of use very specific metacognitive energies, uh, language to look at us. And as you are going through it, it causes the reader to look at themselves and start to wonder if they respond in the same way that you observe about others. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's that's really what we do. We're sort of trying to zoom up from the ground level and to look at humans in a more abstract way. So I'm interested in being able to explain how individuals behave. But in order to do that, you have to zoom back and, and look at a whole lot of people doing the things they do to, to work out whether the thing they're doing is universal or whether it's just a strange quirk that happens to apply to just one or two of them. So I think that's sort of the desired effect that when you read this book and you read about how these speeches of the world around us shape how we think, feel and behave, you do get the sense that you're being watched by a sort of, I don't, I don't want to go, you know, too spiritual, but it's sort of as though you're being watched from above by some larger force that's kind of understanding you in a way that perhaps you didn't understand yourself before. 
And that's the, that's the goal of the book and that's my goal in writing it was to try and give people a better sense of what was driving their decisions because so often in life I think we look at the decisions we're making and we, we're sort of confused by them and we're not sure how we came to them. And sometimes they don't even seem to reflect our, our best interests which is very confusing for a species that th thinks of itself as the sort of apex of every mental pyramid. So yeah, that's exactly the point I think. It's, it's supposed to show you what's actually going on when you make decisions but it's also supposed to make you question a little bit what's driving driving you to those decisions in the first place. Right. And and interestingly, you were talking about sometimes raising questions that have us a bit confused about ourselves and not necessarily having answers, but with kind of an egocentric species that is wanting to have a solution or a resolution we're left with these questions still. So, you know, if we dive into some specifics of the book, you tap into very powerful energies that we experience, such as uh, racism or mm -hmm. biases of that sort, and how they might be cued in us. But you merely bring it to our attention. And so I think people must be left wondering, well, how do I work with this? Do I stop using things that cue me to feel these feelings? Or what do I do? How do I deal with this? Because when we're left to examine it, there's a proclivity to feel as if there's something wrong with it. In mm. other words, not to look at it just as a natural occurrence, but that there's something we have to do with it. If racism exists and you're bringing it to our attention as a scientist, we need to do something somehow. Yeah, I think that's right. With books like this, it's funny when you publish them and when you write them, the editor asks the question, what is the purpose of the book? <laughs> is it is it just, yeah. And you know, there, there are a couple of ways to answer that. It could be that you're just trying to illuminate a problem and you're just trying to shine a spotlight on it so that people can look at it and observe it and understand it a little bit better. And then, you know, you'll be pushed to go a little bit further sometimes, not just to illuminate the problem, but to also suggest some solutions to the problem. Right. And I think for some of the issues that I discuss in the book, there are solutions or there are approximations of solutions. And for others, I think it's very, very difficult to work out how we can deal with these biases. Because, for example, if I tell you the first chapter focuses on names and the fact that the way we name people and objects and places changes the fortune of those people's objects and places. So, for example, there's a, a study I talk about showing that people with names that are easier to pronounce tend to become partners in law firms more quickly than do people with names that are hard to pronounce. Now, that's staggering. And, you know, we, we live by the principle that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. And that's certainly true of humans. You should never judge a human by his or her name. But what do you do with that information? You know, once we know that people with simple names are elevated a little bit relative to those with complex names, there are ways to coach people with difficult names to make their names easier to pronounce. And that's great. I think that's an important intervention. But as the perceiver of these people, say you're a partner in a law firm and you're trying to decide, how do I make the playing field fairer so that I'm not relying on this cue, this biasing cue? It's not really clear that there's an obvious solution. You can't really discount the effect of that name on your judgments of the person because that happens automatically. Right. Um, it's not clear. Should you then try to counteract the effect by elevating people with complex names, by giving them a little boost when all else is equal? Or should you should you sort of dampen the successes of someone with a simple name? And I think the obvious answer there is no. That doesn't seem like it's a very good solution at all. This is what I mean by saying that sometimes it's a matter of just sort of pointing out the issue and then leaving people to try to come up with solutions on their own because there is no great institutional solution to these problems. Right. Well, speaking of institutional solutions, I imagine one possible adaptation might be to provide some sort of institutional or corporate counseling in the sense that you would have them read this information, this book, and guide them in their hiring processes. In other words, to give a, more of a fair chance to everyone if they notice that this bias exists. 
However, I wonder if people read this book and then on a cultural level, on an even bigger level, they're making decisions that are not necessarily misguided, but perhaps unguided. Uh, in other words, a, a parent who's about to have a child decides instead of naming my child this complicated name that I really treasure because it has a very beautiful sound and a unique meaning, mm -hmm. I'm going to go with John Smith because I think my, my child will do better in the future. Now, if enough people do that, you've kind of changed, perhaps changed the course of, of individuality or, or something mm -hmm. big. Absolutely. Yeah. And with names, if we're going to focus on names, I think that's absolutely right. And it's one of the big concerns that I think the beauty of a unique name or an individual name or a culturally significant name or a foreign name is lost if you start using this approach. That's another cost of this, that Within each culture, there are certain strings of letters that are easier to pronounce than others. And if we use the rule that fluency or ease of pronunciation is a good thing, we would be losing a lot of what I think is very beautiful about foreignness and about difference and about diversity. So again, I would never want to say, you know, I have a lot of students that I teach and they, they say things like, you know, I have a very complex name. It's a name that I was, was given to me at birth when I lived in a different country and I spoke a different language. And should I then have an English name that I use in America, an English sounding name or an Anglo name? Right. And I don't really know how to answer that because on the one hand, people are going to be able to use that name more easily than they can use the current name. But on the other hand, I don't want to tell people that they can't keep using a name that means a lot to them, that has some really important personal meaning that's unique and in some ways, obviously, to them, very beautiful. So it's, it's quite tricky. In your estimation, with evolution taking its natural course, if enough people with enough different sounding names are successful so that the pronunciation of those names becomes more common or even attractive to most people, then do you think there, there will be some sort of shift and in other words, things will flip in a way. In other words, the what are now more unique and difficult to pronounce names will become, in fact, the ones that are more cherished and desired. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. And that's certainly what's happened. If you look at, look at the U.S. presidency, for example, before the current president, we had a George and a Bill and a George and a Ron and a Jimmy. And, you know, if you go back into history, they were all very, very common Anglo male names or European male names. And now we have a president named Barack Obama. Now, when people first heard that name, it was very foreign and very different for them. And a lot of them weren't sure how to pronounce it. But it's probably now the most fluent and familiar name on the planet. I think everyone knows how to pronounce the name. And when you see it in writing, it's like seeing John Smith. And so I think experience is really important. And the more we're exposed to diversity, the more likely we are to be able to grapple with strings of letters that were once foreign to us. They become much more familiar and much more fluent and understandable. And so, yes, absolutely. I think exposure to diversity is, is really important for that. And changes in culture are also really important in driving this openness to, to these, these foreign names. Well, let's make a larger leap then. Do you think uh, evolutionarily that with enough diversity in, let's say, interracial marriages and uh, enough success with minorities becoming larger in population than the majority or perhaps in higher paying positions than some of the majority presently, that there will be more of an acceptance and letting go of some of the uh, bigotry and racism prejudice that exists. I'd like to think so in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I think all of this prejudice and racism comes from a group of humans a very long time ago who spent all their time in very, very small groups of, say, 50 to 100 people, or at the very most, 100 people. And so if you were only exposed to 100 people through the course of your life, it made sense for the 101st person to concern you. 
you hadn't really been exposed to strangers. There were no strangers, basically. And when you saw strangers, it was because you were about to begin war or some other, you know, there was some calamity that, that forced you together. I think now we live in obviously a situation where most of us are exposed to many more people than 100. And over time, I think that's absolutely true. And you can see that our values are becoming much more progressive. Our attitudes to foreignness and difference and diversity are becoming much more relaxed and liberal, I think. This is true about all people. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs are. We are all becoming, in that sense, more liberal. And you, you can see this across the course of the 20th century and into the 21st, that pretty much every law that exists has become more lax, more liberal, and more open. And it's even true it's true about people who are very conservative. Even very conservative people have become more lax in their views compared to the conservatives of 100 years ago. So I think if we're going to talk about the evolutionary timescale, talking about hundreds and hundreds of years and multiple generations, yeah, I think over time we will generally become more open to diversity and foreignness and difference. So this is good news for those who are disenfranchised and disempowered. Obviously, there's no prediction of exactly when, but the idea that nature will take its course and eventually, hopefully sooner than later, the playing field will be even. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I hope that happens. I don't think it will. And I think part of the reason is because although we become more used to and more exposed to foreignness and difference, we're a very groupy species as well. And so you find that there are groups that form on the basis of almost nothing. There are very, very, very famous experiments from the 70s and 80s showing, for example, that if you take a group of students, say they're students in a class, they could be, say, 100 students, and you ask them to look at two paintings, and they could be paintings by, say, one by Monet and one by Van Gogh, and you, you say to them, which of these is your favorite? And based on that answer alone, you then split them into groups. So half of them like the Monet, half of them like the Van Gogh, and then you split them into the groups. You find that even weeks and weeks later, those groups are very, very powerful and they actually drive behavior. And so the people who happen to like Van Gogh, even though that's sort of an irrelevancy when it comes to interacting with other people, they group together, they become friends, they become colleagues, they become supportive of one another, and they denigrate and try to remove resources from the people who like the Monet. That's an example of a trivial group distinction or group marker. You can start to see why things like skin color and religion and ethnicity become such powerful wedges between groups. Because if we're going to respond that way to which painting we like at the beginning of a semester, you can see that we're sort of very strongly wired to split into these groups and to, to see our own, regardless of what you use to define that, that term own, our own should get more than, than the other. Right. Well, I imagine it's all about safety on some level. In other words, we have a, an innate desire to belong. and We have an innate desire to belong to a specific group. The familiarity of that group, its culture, etc., is what helps us feel safe. And therefore, in order to distinguish our group, then there must be an other, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Safety is a big part of it. And I think that novelty is what gets the safety hackles up and gets us concerned and makes us concerned. When we are exposed to something that's different, sometimes you don't really know what to make of it. And if we're going to go back to evolution, evolutionarily, when you see something that's foreign, you don't really know if that thing's going to help you or hurt you or do nothing at all. And so familiarity is a sign that this thing that you've seen before hasn't killed you yet or hurt you yet. So it must be okay, which is one big reason why, as a general rule in, in human psychology, we prefer things that are familiar or easy to make sense of or easy to process. So I wonder if we apply more education, if we help people advocate for themselves and voice what it is that, that's going on, what they observe, whether that would help people when they are being protective, when they are recoiling into these groups to actually remain open and more understanding. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think anytime these these instincts remain hidden, which they tend to do because they're instinctive, they they aren't usually verbalized. I think it always helps to to bring them out into the open and to discuss them because that that, that ability to grapple with the ideas, to philosophize and to talk about them back and forth among people, I think is the best way to, to overcome any of these instincts that are ultimately and essentially kind of harmful to us as a species. Well, I wonder if also it would be effective, and maybe this sounds more like an experiment than an, <laughs> a very uh, practical or helpful idea, but I wonder if it would be possible to institutionalize some changes. Uh, so I'll go to another example you give in the book. When you talk about colors, you talk about how certain colors, whether it's because of the frequency that they have or whether it's because of cultural associations with them, they represent uh, certain kinds of energies to people, like red might stimulate aggression. At the same time, it might also stimulate romance. The color white might stimulate something more peaceful and relaxing. So that being the case, you know, would it actually work? Would it be effective to have a sports governing body insist that the players only use certain colors so that they're judged fairly or they're less aggressive than they need to be, etc.? Yeah, I, it's so difficult and I never really know what to suggest in these cases because that to me sounds so intrusive. Right. The governing bodies start to say, you're not allowed to have a uniform that features the color red and black is not allowed either because those two make people more aggressive. I just think once we get to that point, we've sort of lost something about choice and about our ability to make decisions on our own. But having said that, yeah, when you look at the data, it does. It just doesn't look good. So the, the, the one experiment that you're referring to there is uh, an experiment looking at some Olympic contestants in combat sports, so judo, wrestling, and boxing. And basically, the International Olympic Committee for the last dozens of years has, before each bout, randomly assigned one of the competitors to wear blue and one of them to wear red. And the theory is that this is fair. It basically takes you outside of the colors that are associated with the country that you're representing, and it evens the playing field a little bit. So sometimes you'll wear blue and sometimes you'll wear red, randomly determined. And some researchers know, knowing that in the animal kingdom, red is associated with dominance and aggression, wondered whether this was really truly fair. And so what they did was they looked at the the results of dozens and dozens of contests over time at the Olympics. And they found that the contestant who was randomly drawn to wear red won about 65% of the time. So two-thirds of the time, the person who'd been drawn to wear red under certain circumstances won the bout, which suggests that this isn't fair because there was no real, there was no strong prior reason why you'd expect the person wearing red to win more often. It's just a really good illustration of how these colors do end up driving performance there are a couple of reasons for this. One of them is that the team wearing red actually behaves with more aggression, and so they end up being more dominant. And in a combat sport, that's a virtue. There's also some evidence that the referees who are watching the matches see the person wearing red as more dominant. And that's consistent with a lot of biological behavior across different species. There are a lot of animals, a lot of birds, a lot of primates, where the dominant animal in the pack or the herd happens to be the one that has the most red on his fur or his tail feathers or whatever it may be. And so it's exactly the same idea, just applied to humans. We're also animals. We may be higher order animals, but we still have the same instincts. So it's a, it's a really striking idea. And so yes, outlawing red might resolve that issue. It's not totally clear that that's a great solution because all colors c- convey some more information than perhaps they should. They're not just idle markers for one contestant versus another. But it's, yeah, you you make a really interesting point. Maybe we should do that. (laughs) Making it more of a controversial issue, you can imagine being in a scenario where you're walking down the street and you see what you would call an other, someone that is more foreign to you than those that you know in your group, someone perhaps of a different skin color, and you might have a sense of anxiety and perhaps even danger 
but you may question yourself because applying some of this information that we learn about in your book, we might think, well, these are my associations. These are stereotypes. Uh, I, I should not be afraid of this other person because that's just uh, based on something that I've learned. It's not something that necessarily is so. But in doing so, we may be invalidating our actual instincts that tell us there's real danger. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's right. And that's what people do. I absolutely believe that, that they, they do spend a lot of time asking themselves questions like that one. So we have a lot of knowledge. Even if you don't endorse stereotypes, we all have them and we carry them. And we have them about pretty much everyone that we meet. You never go into a situation, meet someone and have no baggage associated with that. Either you focus on their age or their gender or their ethnicity or their religion or the way they speak or their accent or whatever it may be. And so from the very first minute you start interacting with pretty much anyone, there will be baggage. And if you're a person who believes that you shouldn't be judging other people that way, whether it's about, you know, your potential safety in a situation or whether it's in a, a work context or a social context, you will automatically do your best to counteract those biases. Now, at the same time, they're very, very useful because if you had to meet every single person from scratch wondering whether they were going to help you or hurt you, whether you would have a decent interaction with them or not, life would become exhausting and I think social interaction would become exhausting and we'd be paralyzed by it. So these stereotypes, even though the word is a sort of dirty word generally, I think forming associations that then guide us in new situations and allow us to apply what we've learned in the past to the future are very, very useful in general. It's just that we over-apply them. And then we, we don't take enough account of individual factors that might override the stereotype. So that's a good example of, of one that you just raised, the idea that you're walking down the street, you come into contact with someone whose features suggest that they might be of some danger to you, whatever that, those features may be. You know, that's something you may have learned over time, but trying to apply to this person here who's in front of you, who may very well have the best intentions, it sort of affects and harms our ability to interact socially in a sort of comfortable and healthy way. Right. And I think there are probably people who understand this type of phenomena, as you do, someone who understands the psychology of it, and might even exploit others. In other words, if I know that somebody's going to question their instinct because they feel fear, but they're afraid to say something because they might offend, well, then I might actually use that against them in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I imagine that you know certainly companies that are trying to sell products will do the same thing. I mean, there there are probably people who exploit this type of, of psychology. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. I'm I'm sure that that does happen. Yeah, it's it, it is very tricky because it's not clear how you can both accept that you have these associations that they're quite useful or that they've been reliable enough in the past. Perhaps they've been reliable, and then how you should go forward in meeting new people. Because I think a lot of us hold this belief that you shouldn't judge people before you've met them. It doesn't matter what you know about their groups or about the, the associations. Right. Well, I would imagine that you have to you know work on yourself since that's primarily what we are in control of, and develop a mindfulness toggle switch. In other words, that we allow both to exist, that we have these associations and that we are trying to be open-minded to other possible associations and to perhaps respect our instinct and then examine our instinct. Yeah, there is good evidence for that toggle, that ability to overcome these these initial biases, that people who are motivated to do it, people who are particularly open-minded, for example, are much better at doing that. And it happens almost as automatically as the initial stereotype happens. So for example, if you know a particular group is associated with a negative trait, you immediately, the minute you interact with someone from that group, that 
negativity will spark and you'll remember that, but just as quickly you'll override it. Some people become very, very good at that, so much so that you can't even detect it in the way they're making very rapid judgments. Right. I would imagine that you could look at this in cases of trauma, for example. There is often a post-traumatic stress that is essentially associations with variables that were involved in the event. And therefore, when these variables are experienced in the present, there's a kind of a reference to them in the past. And one cannot help that from happening because it involves such a primitive energy that impacts you, this terror or helplessness or powerlessness, whatever is involved in the trauma. And therefore, one has to sort of spend a lot of time using this toggle switch as they experience the variables in the present in order not to keep getting triggered or to keep having these negative associations. Yeah, I think that's a really big part of post-traumatic stress. It's, it's this over-application of it, the association that you have to that context, that stressful context. And trying to counteract that, I think, is quite difficult because humans are very good learners. And with when something has strong emotional content for us, we learn incredibly quickly. And it's very hard to extinguish what we've learned. And I, I think that's a really big part of what goes on. Now, as I said, it can be very useful to learn quickly because it helps us to operate in the world and to interact with new stimuli and new experiences, having already learned some things that might help us in that new situation. But a lot of the time, it can be hurtful or harmful or it can be debilitating, as is the case with post-traumatic stress. Can you say anything about the second book that you're working on now, in which you talk about uh, people who are addicted to so many different types of behaviors? Yeah, I can. It's basically about the fact that the nature of addiction has changed a lot over time. So we used to think of addiction as a substance problem. And it, the substance could be one of many things. It could be nicotine, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, narcotics, it could be all sorts of things. But it always involved substances. And, you know, we started to talk more about gambling as, as gambling devices became more addictive. But the book is basically about the fact that in the last 15 or 20 years, we're almost all addicted to something. And the sources of our addictions have changed. They're not about substances. They're about behaviors and interactions and experiences. And so I talk a lot about things like email, smartphones, social media, social networking, addiction to exercise, to work, to shopping, that if you speak to most people in the developed world, there's at least one of those things that they wish they could do less of, but it's very hard for them to do less of. When I talk to my students, when I first start teaching them, usually in the first class, I'll ask them to imagine that I took their phones from them, their cell phones, their smartphones from them for a week and put them in a cupboard and locked the cupboard and, and made it impossible for them to access the phones. And I asked them how much they'd need to be paid to be willing to have me do that. And basically, it comes to the point where they say, I really need this thing so badly that the only way I'll accept that is if you give me enough money so I can go out and buy another one in the meantime. So it's just, that's just one case or one example, but that's, that's sort of the, the basic idea of the book is that this is a major issue. It's trying to understand the psychology behind it. Why does this happen and why has it become so much worse over time? So interestingly, their, their solution actually proves the addiction in, in which they say, well, I actually can't give it up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a, it's a nice demonstration of just how strong the effect is. Do you have any sense that this is related to identity, which might make it, in fact, closely related to what you've talked about in Drunk Tank Pink? I think addiction, to a large extent, is a sort of absence of, of the kinds of human connections and social connections that are very healthy. There's a sort of myth that if you take drugs or uh, interacting with a, a substance that's otherwise addictive, that you're automatically going to become addicted, that just by ingesting it, you'll become addicted. And there's really pretty good evidence that that's just not true, that you need something else. You need another ingredient. And the ingredient you need is, it can be loneliness. It can be some sort of psychic gap, some, some sort of psychological gap between where you would like to be and where you are right now. The drug or the addiction is supposed to bridge that gap or does bridge that gap for people. 
if you feel like you have all the social support you need and you have very rich social interactions with people and you feel well-loved, it's much less common for you to also develop addictions. Now, some people do anyway, but they tend to be shorter lasting and less severe. So I, I think identity plays a role there in that it's sort of the... It's not quite the magic bullet, but I think it's a it's a solution to a lot of addiction problems. That, right. Uh, yeah. It sounds like belonging. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right. So uh, this is actually a very interesting topic, and I'm hoping maybe we can talk another time when the book comes out. Do you have a title for it? I don't yet. Actually, I keep going back and forth on the title. This The same thing happened with Drunk Tank Pink. It was the last thing I settled on. But uh, I've written a draft of it, and it'll probably be out sometime in 2016, probably near the end of the year. Well, terrific. That's something we can look forward to. Maybe not get it for Christmas, but <laughs> uh, perhaps in the new year. Anyway, Dr. Alter, I thank you so much for joining us. It's really been elucidating and, and very uh, engaging as well. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. I appreciate it. I'll look forward to talking to you another time. Be well. You too. This is Nicholas Strauss. I've enjoyed having you with us today. If you'd like to participate some more, please visit us on the web at www.theparticipantobserver.com, where you'll find all things related to the Participant Observer. We'd love to hear from you because you are the Participant Observer.